Good morning, family. Happy 4th of July. Happy Sunday. Hope everyone's having a great Sunday so far. Um, and that you will have a great, uh, great Sunday as you continue to celebrate with family and loved ones and with us today as we celebrate our Lord and Savior and also the fact that we live in a great country because that is true. It's amazing how stuff works out because we're going to continue our journey through the book of Romans. Um, oh, Acts. Where am I? I'm like two years ago when we did Romans. Woo! We're going to continue our book of Acts. Uh, and we're in Acts 15 today. And uh, Acts 15, as we'll see, is actually a monumental moment in the Christian church as they have what's called the Jerusalem Council. And they really established this, this thing called Christian liberty. That because we're saved just by grace and by faith and through faith, that we actually have Christian liberty. And how we practice our Christian life, there's actually a lot of freedom and liberty in that. And I say it's an amazing thing because I did not plan this, that on 4th of July we're actually going to be talking about a true freedom that far surpasses any freedom we can have here on this earth by government. Because we're talking about freedom we have in Christ, a freedom that we have as we celebrate our Lord, and live for Him. And so that's what we're going to see. I just gave you my sermon. So that's what we're going to see in Acts chapter 15. But before we go there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank You so much for this day. The Lord's Day. A day that we celebrate because we can come together as Your church, as Your people, and praise Your name, knowing the truth of how You've transformed us how you've saved us, how you have now made us a people, your people, for your purpose. Lord, I pray for this time as we open up your word that we can see the truth of it, that we can see the reality of how you love us and how you have sent your son to die for us and live for us and to rise for us. And Lord, I pray for this church here that we realize we are part of your, your church, the global church that the gates of hell cannot prevail against your church. That we're united not just with everyone in this room, but we're united with our brothers and sisters across this community as they preach the gospel and hear the gospel. We're united together with our brothers and sisters throughout this nation and then throughout this whole globe as we praise your name together as your people. Lord, we love you, we seek you, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's human nature, I suppose. I think we all do it. That when we hear the amazing truth of the gospel, the fact that God loves us and lavishes his love upon us, not based on anything in us, but just because of his grace, and he sends his son to live that perfect life that we can't live, to die the death that we all deserve, to rise from the grave showing us the newness of life that awaits us and ushering in his new kingdom, when we see that glorious gospel, we add stuff to it. It's amazing. I think we all do it, maybe in our minds, we can see it around, but when we see the glorious gospel, it's so tempting to start to add something to it. And I think we do this um, kind of unconsciously. We don't realize we're doing it, and we might do it for different reasons, but humans are innately pride. We can admit prideful. We can admit that. And so when we see the glorious gospel, gospel, it's so easy to start saying, yeah, but I need to bring something to the table. I need to do something to prove myself. And so we start adding 
to the gospel. I need to do something to prove that I believe in Jesus. Or maybe we just believe it's too good to be true. And so it almost seems doubtful that God loves us so much in spite of our sin to save us. And so, yeah, I need to maybe hedge my bets a little bit and bring something to God so he can look upon me favorably. But that's not the gospel. For the moment we start adding something to the good news, it doesn't happen to be good news anymore. It becomes something we have to do, something we have to achieve or earn. And we should make no mistake about it that when the gospel grabs hold of us, yes, we are changed and we're transformed, and that leads to a transformed life. But that transformed life is never the cause of our salvation. It's always the outflow and the working of that salvation in our life. You can say the, the ways we respond and the ways we're called to live for our Lord are never at the root of our salvation, but they're always going to be the fruit of that salvation we have in God as he works in us and changes us and makes us the people he wants us to be. This is really getting that down to the bare bones questions, the big question of the Christian life. How is someone saved? How does someone come to be right with the righteous almighty God? Do they come to be right because they bring something to the table and they do something to earn something to please him in some way? Or do they do it because of Jesus? This is the big question that was answered in Acts 15. It's a big question that still is resounding throughout the churches today as we celebrate this, this Sunday. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 15. If you don't, have no worries. It'll be on the screen as we read the first 35 verses of Acts uh, 15. A little longer section, but you see the story kind of holding together as uh, the, the church meets together. And so just a little backstory before we dive into Acts 15. Remember, it's coming right after what? Acts 14. That's how the numbers work. And we just saw that Paul and Barnabas, they had returned from their first kind of missionary trip, and they had been preaching the gospel through these, these cities in what we would call modern-day Turkey nowadays in Asia Minor, and now they had ride back into Antioch. And so they're in Antioch, which is up in modern-day Syria, and they are with the church, and that is where the story picks up, is back in Antioch, uh, the church being the church. And it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent underway by the church, they passed through both uh, Thessalonica and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the, all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to him, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment... Judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called uh, uh, Beresabus and Silas, uh, Silas, leading men among them, the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers, who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from that which has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. If, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of his encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This, as I said, is the account of the first kind of gathering of the church to determine doctrine. What do we believe? It's the Jerusalem uh, Council. And they decided to send a letter to the churches actually uh, uh, establishing what they came to conclusion. So what could we sum up is the message or the summary that they come to is simply this. Salvation by grace through faith grants Christian liberty. That's what they come to is that when they were talking about this big issue, what saves a person? There's two parties at play here. They're debating amongst each other. Do we have to do something? Do we have to fall under the old ways of, of Judaism to become a Christian and, and then come to Christ? No. What saves a person? And they come to that conclusion it is Jesus and Jesus alone, which saves a person. And so they come to the exclusion of faith. And this has, this has outworkings or repercussions for how someone lives and the freedom that they have because of that. We can simply say the council came to the conclusion, salvation by grace through faith grants Christian liberty. So when we look at that, 
we can really separate, I think these, there's two parts to this question. One is the salvation part. How is someone accepted by God? And the other part is how then do we live in light of that salvation we have, which I, I term Christian liberty. So let's talk first about that salvation part that uh, is established in this council. That they established very clearly, I would say, that we are saved by grace through faith. We see this debate arise because some people in Judea who are Christians, they, we, they, they don't have nefarious um, intentions, but they were seeking to honor God how they thought they, thought they should honor God. And so they were most likely Jewish in background. And so they had come through Christ, through the Jewish faith. And so now they were saying, well, that's how people have to know Christ. And so they travel up to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas are, are ministering to this church, and they start telling these new believers who are of mixed nature, Jewish people as well as Gentiles, hey, wait a minute, if you were a Gentile, if you did not first become circumcised, first become a proselyte to Judaism, you can't know Jesus. And Paul and Barnabas disagreed. They say, hey, we just traveled throughout the known world preaching the gospel without including circumcision, and the Holy Spirit was coming upon people. God was blessing this endeavor. What you're saying, guys, is wrong. And I love how the Bible puts it, or like we can say how Luke puts it in the book of Acts, how Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. I think that's an understatement of the century no small debate with them. If, you, if you've read through Paul's epistles to the church, especially Galatians, you know that this is an issue that keeps on cropping up, that he keeps on addressing, and that his debate with people is not small. It's actually big, pretty big and pretty harsh at points. And so this was a battle that Paul and Barnabas stood on the side and said, you are trying to add to the work of Christ. You are trying to put a yoke upon our brothers and sisters that they could not bear, that even you cannot bear. How dare you try to separate someone from the finished work of Christ? And so there was no small debate happening amongst this, the people. So much so the church says, we must send you and some others back to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles, to talk to the elders there, and to see what is the truth. Where does the church stand? So Paul and Barnabas and these other people, they travel back to Jerusalem, and they, when they arrive in Jerusalem, they find actually a divided church there as some of the Christians in Jerusalem, particularly those who had belonged to the Pharisee party before they become Christians, now we're saying, no, actually those people were right. We need to follow the Jewish law in order to follow Christ. At the core of this debate is how someone can be saved. The core of this debate is on what path do we put people to find and be right with God? Do we put people on the path of following rules and regulations put down in the law to be right with God? Or do we put people on the path of knowing Jesus and Jesus alone and that is what saves someone? This debate rages on within this council and we see the council um, talking about this and in the midst of this, Peter stands up and says to them, guys, we already talked about this. 
If you guys remember, Peter went down to Caesarea and he ministered to um, Cornelius, a Gentile. And his, him and his whole household came to know the Lord. And the Holy Spirit fell upon him just like it did at Pentecost upon the Jewish Christians. And, now he, and then he went back up to Jerusalem and the people in Jerusalem were like, wait, what are you doing? And he discussed it with them and pointed to the fact that this is truly how God is working. And they said, okay, we accept them as brothers and sisters. And so you can imagine Peter hearing this debate arise again saying, haven't we established this? Haven't we been over this? But yet you still are dwelling on this difference between a Jew and a Gentile when you shouldn't be. That God saves us in the same way. And that in fact there's no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles within God's kingdom. He makes this point, the crux of his point is in verses 8 and 11. I'm just going to read those again because you see his point as he's, he is talking to the council, these, these, uh, this gathering of the apostles and the elders. And he talks about, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That he's slain out this truth. They were cleansed through their faith. They're saved by grace, just like we are. How would we put other burdens upon them that they possibly could not bear. For we could not bear it, and our forefathers could not bear it. That the only way we can come to be right before our God is through grace. This is a statement, this idea, that becomes the standard throughout the New Testament as Paul and Barnabas and the other missionaries are going out and spreading the word of God. You see it again and again, that, that Peter taught it right here. Paul was already preaching it, but he continues to preach it. And we see it in some of those monumental passages of the faith that we have in the epistles of the New Testament. Like Ephesians 2. I'm just going to read 4 through 9 where it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, in, um, in his grace, in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. That we're saved by grace. That this is through our faith. And our faith connects us, is the instrument that connects us to the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. And he saves us, not based on anything we do, not from following the law, not from being good enough, not from being smart enough, not from people liking us, or anything we might want to tally in our tally books, but because of his mercy and his love, that we're saved by grace. This same, same thing is reflected in, in the book of Titus when he's writing to um, his, uh, his disciple Titus, Paul is, in Titus 3, 4, and 7, it says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own 
mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that by being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again and again we see this, the standard of the New Testament of faith in Christ. What is it? It's the fact that we're saved by grace. Unmerited favor by God has been poured out on us because of Jesus. That if we know Jesus through faith, connected through him through faith, we know we are saved, not on anything we have done, but all because of what Christ has done. This testimony that Peter spoke in the, in the Jerusalem Council is further supported as Paul and Barnabas step up and they tell of how they preached this. And the Gentiles responded. How God worked through them, these signs and wonders. And people see how it's been actually being lived out and, being, and working throughout all these, these uh, churches and these uh, cities in, in, the, in the world. And then James stands up. And this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. James, who we know becomes a Christian after Jesus was resurrected and appeared to James, as we see in 1 Corinthians 15. But James is now a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And he's known as being a really devout um, um, follower of Christ. And it's probably a really devout Jew as well, as he followed Christ through uh, Judaism, as he knew how to do that. Um, in you know, tradition kind of reports he was a man of prayer and that uh, he was really re well respected. And that if there was anyone that these, this party of following the law thought maybe would support them, it would be James. But yet James stands up and what does he say to this council? Well, he starts by supporting what Peter said. Hey, guys... We know what he said and how God worked through the Gentiles. We should listen to him. But I love how James says this because the wording he uses to talk about how God brought people out of the Gentiles is the exact same wording used throughout the Bible to talk about how God brought people into his nation, Israel, and made them. And he says that God took people took from out of the world, from the Gentiles, a people for his name. This is the way it's phrased again and again when he talks about Israel, that he took them out of the world for his name. That James was making not so subtle of a point that God was taking Gentiles just like he took Israel and he's making them his people. That in the Christian church there will be Jew and there will be Gentile and they will both be saved in the same fashion by grace through faith and they will be God's People. And this was not something new. This actually was a plan from the very beginning because he goes back and he quotes from Amos chapter 9 and he says, this is how God has always intended to build back the tent of David. Israel, the true Israel will be made up of people who believe in Jesus Christ. So we can say, ask that question again, how is someone saved? How does someone become saved? right with God? Is it following those list of rules and regulations? Is it being of a certain nationality or ethnic type? No. The council made it very clear. This is where we stand. We are saved by Christ and Christ alone that where salvation is by grace through faith. And that is still true today.
That I would argue that if to be a Christian, we have to understand this fundamental fact that we're saved by grace through faith. And that's actually what separates Christianity from all other world religions. For, this is the, for Christianity is the only religion that I would argue truly has this freedom of the fact that we're saved not by our own doing, but only by grace. And that our faith is used for that. When we look at all the other religions throughout the world, what do we see? We see people having to earn, having to achieve, having to do something in some form or some fashion to be right with their God. If you go to Islam, you'll see them following the five pillars of Islam where they have to do something, they have to achieve, they have to do these things and hope that Allah finds favor with them. They have to do. If you go to Mormonism, what do you see? You see people striving to earn and achieve so that they can earn their own godhood. If you go to the East, you see this idea of karma, and what is that but you are doing being good enough, achieving enough, that so that you can hope that when you come back and reincarnate, you might be in a better caste as a better person. You see this idea that even in the East, where you, whether it's through meditation or for self-denial, that somehow you can earn or achieve a oneness with the cosmos. Again and again, you can put a world religion that does not know Christ, and what do you see? You see people on a treadmill running for their lives, hoping, begging, just expecting something to happen and having no confidence in their future or their destiny. But Christianity is founded on this premise that you're saved because of Christ. You're freed because of him. It's all his doing. So you can relax and let that transform you. For when we hear this truth that where salvation is by grace through faith, I hope you can let this free you. That frees you from any expectation that somehow you have to achieve something, you have to earn something. Any expectation that somehow you have to wake up in the morning and earn God's love. That he, when you are sinning or when you mess up or stumble and you're, and you're repenting it, that you're, you're somehow thinking that God is frowning upon you and that he does not love you the same. It frees you from the expectation that when you fail, which we do, that somehow we're standing outside of God's good graces. That is not the Christian message. The Christian message is that he loves you because of Jesus and it's all been paid for and that he's working and working and you change you and transform you so that now you'll start living for him out from, from the inside out. And so there's tremendous freedom. Let that free you from thinking you have to be good enough or that you have to earn enough or that you have to keep a tally book so that when you finally arrive in heaven, you have to present it and say, please, I hope this was enough. That is not the Christian message. That is not the burden that Christ places on us. He says, I have done it all. I have saved you. Which means we have to let this comfort us. And it's so easy, if you, especially if you have a mentality like mine, to feel down about yourself and to get downcast and look around and say, I am not good enough, and I stumble and I fall, and I just can't seem to even live one day without doing things I'm not supposed to do, and that can weigh upon me. That when I get tired like I was last night, I can get snippy and snappy with my kids who keep asking the same thing again and again. And I go, Why? my hope was in myself and how well I can achieve, I would be doomed. But my comfort is that my hope is in Christ who wipes away all my sin. 
that removes it as far as the east is from the west, that has cleansed me, as Peter would put it, through my faith, that I'm saved just like all Christians are saved by His grace. Salvation by grace through faith grants Christian liberty. Because once we know that salvation, that salvation, the fact that we're saved, does have an impact on our life. We don't follow the law to earn points with God or to somehow to get into God's good graces, and we don't follow the law to somehow stay in God's graces. But once we're transformed by the gospel, we can read the whole Bible, including these regulations that we find sometimes absurd or hard to understand. We can read those and see that these are good guides and good principles and good ways and markers that point us into how we can honor God with our lives. That this has never earns us anything or achieves us anything, but because we're changed and the gospel changes us and we're given a new heart that now beats for God and that we're changed and we are now going to be transformed. We start living for the glory of God in our day-to-day life. Little by little, we start to follow Him. And because we're not saved by these rules and regulations, enters this idea that we have liberty, Christian liberty, which is basically the idea because we're not saved by these rules and regulations, saved by grace and grace alone, that if the Bible does not explicitly speak about an issue, there is an area where we have freedom to practice as our conscience, informed by the Bible, leads us. And that people should not put stuff upon us, and we should not be putting other extra Bible stuff upon them. And that works out, as we see in Acts 15, as they come to this conclusion in this Jerusalem council, well, what should we tell our Christian brothers and sisters? If we accept that these Gentiles are accepted into the Christian church and that they know God, what do we then tell them? Well, they give them simply four regulations to follow. And it's simply, don't mess around with idols, refrain from sexual immorality, and don't mess around and eat animals that are strangled or eat their blood. And you go, why these three restrictions? Or four, really. But three, really. Restrictions about how to follow God. When they're looking at the whole Christian life, why would they now sum up, well, these are, the, these are the things we want you not to do. And there's some debate. Uh, people kind of come down in different ways of this. But I think it boils down to this. They say, hey, Refrain from messing around with idols. Why? Because idol worshiping is prevalent throughout the whole empire. It is idolatry, which is anti-Christ, is anti-God, is anti-what you know to be true. And so you need to be, remain distinct and different from the nation around you. So don't even do anything that would hint at that you can mess around with idols in Jesus. Don't think you can take Jesus and put him right next to your idol and it's okay that Jesus is God and God alone. And so don't do that. Be distinct from the world around you. The same thing with sexual morality is the idea that sexual morality was rampant among the Gentiles. It's, it's, it's how they practice, but God has given a sexual ethic to his people that is good. It protects us. And so they're saying to be distinct from the nations because this is good and it's for your benefit that you should refrain from doing the ways of the Gentiles and that you follow Christ and even your sex life. 
And then finally, these last two I would probably pair together that they refrain from those that which is strangled or the blood, which is really talking about the uh, almost kosher laws, the dietary laws of the Jewish nation uh, and the people, and that they wouldn't eat these things. And they're basically saying, hey, there are many Jews spread throughout the empire. And they hear the law of Moses uh, uh, read every Sabbath, it says. Don't put a roadblock in front of you preaching to them the gospel, that if you would live and disregard some of those things, that somehow they would not listen to you. If they would not listen to you because you practice those, don't do it. That this, These last restrictions are really saying, you are free to do that. That's not uh, uh, impacts your relationship with God, but don't do it because of the Jewish people that live within the empire that you might reach with the gospel. Really, when you look at these Regulations, I would argue, come down to two overriding principles of how we should live with our freedom that we have in Christ. The first is that because we're saved by grace, we should not make non-biblical requirements of others. That they knew that these Gentiles were saved by grace through their faith. And so they knew that they should not take something that has been fulfilled in Christ, the law, and now apply it to them and say you have to achieve and earn. You should not do that. That's how they were operating then, that to a Gentile Christian would have to become a good Jew to become a good Christian. And they said that's not how it works. Well, nowadays, the issue would look a little different. But it's saying, don't take things that are not explicitly stated in the Scripture and now apply them to other Christians saying, to be a good Christian, you have to be X. That might be, to be a good Christian, you have to be Republican or Democrat. That is not expressed in Scripture. To be a good Christian, you have to homeschool your kids or send your kids to Christian school or um, you know, send your kids to public school so they can be a light in the world. That, again, is an area of debate, of freedom that Christians can talk about, but is not stated by in, in the Word. And there's all those areas, whether it's manner of dress or whether it's musical preferences or whether it's matters of alcohol or even smoking and all these issues that are not expressed through Scripture as being sin or not, they, 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 they go into this area where we can debate about it and see if they're glorifying God and we can have good conversations about how a Christian lives in light of the freedom we have. But notice what this is not saying. This principle is not saying that we don't hold one another accountable to what is expressed in Scripture. That if something is labeled as not being profitable or beneficial to the Christian person, we do hold our brothers and sisters accountable. If someone goes astray and does things that are sin, we would say, stop it. We'll help you. Let's get back on track. Live in the light of freedom, but not just so you can Feed your base desires. And we see that they had that understanding in Acts 15 because they, that's why they were talking about idolatry and sexual morality, that they did not shy away from the truth of how someone should live. But this first principle that we don't put non-biblical requirements upon others always comes along with that second principle, which is since we're saved by grace, we gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. This is what they were urging the Gentile Christians in the church to do. They said, as you go out and you're preaching the gospel, there are certain things that you can restrain, restrain from 
that would help you preach the gospel to those Jews in the empire that need to hear about Jesus Christ. So don't flaunt your freedom by eating stuff strangled or eating the blood. But actually restrain yourself so that there would be no roadblock so that you could preach the gospel to a Jewish person and they wouldn't be turned off just by your lifestyle, but actually could hear you and respond to what you have to say. So I'm sorry if you like blood pudding. It says you can't do that. No one laughs, so I don't think anyone likes blood pudding around here. This is good. But we can say, take that and modernize it and say there's things that we know that might turn someone off from even hearing the gospel. And if that's true, even though we're free to do that, we restrain ourselves and don't do that. All for the sake of them being able to hear who Christ is and responding to that message. This is what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of of them. To the Jew I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. That he knew this fact that salvation by grace through faith grants Christian liberty, but that liberty is not to be used as a license to sin and do what you want, but that liberty is to be used so that you know the freedom and walk in it, but yet you limit it to spread the gospel wherever it needs to go. And so what do we do with this? message that salvation by grace through faith grants Christian liberty. Well, I hope that you see how it's relevant today as we interact with our fellow Christians and we serve. But I'll just summarize it with this phrase. You have been freed to serve. You have been freed to serve. And so the first thing we need to do is realize the freedom we have. The first thing we need to do is is dwell on this amazing fact of the gospel that we've been freed from having to achieve. We've been freed from this burden that weighs on us. We've been freed from having to prove ourselves. We're freed from the bounds of sin because God has paid for all through Christ Jesus. We are freed and we have this greatest freedom possible as we walk in this newness of life. But that freedom... It's not just to be used so we can flaunt our freedom or just be free. God has freed us with a purpose. And that is to serve his kingdom, serve his people, and to spread the gospel. As Paul says in Galatians 5, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is just as fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That Paul is striking that real truth that Christian liberty means that we live out our faith in Christ in such a way that we serve people. We don't use our freedom to uh, flaunt it or just live how we want or to feed our base desires, but we use our freedom so that we can serve and go anywhere and love people and preach the gospel to them so that they can respond and know who Christ is. So dwell on your freedom. Freedom that far surpasses the freedom that we celebrate tonight with firing fireworks. 
freedom that frees us to have a relationship with God, but also know that he has given us this newness of life to serve him and to spread the gospel and to be his people. Salvation by grace through faith grants Christian liberty. Join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for this freedom that we can celebrate every Sunday as we come and celebrate you and the life that you've given us. Lord, we love you. We seek you. We ask that you continue to build us up, continue to guide us through those issues that we might debate about with one another, but that we can do it all with love and charity, basing our, the truth we know from your word in our lives. Lord, we love you. We ask that you continue to guide us and guide this church and continue to uh, point in where we need to serve and point where we need to use our freedom to serve others and love others. Lord, we love you. We seek you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together again. Do you want to say anything?